Yes or no to this statement, end-of-life care. We can't afford to keep it to everybody, so we're going to have to ration it. Is that right or is that wrong? Well, since probably all of us at some point want to have our crack at it when it's our turn, but probably all of us in the meantime, we're going to have to pay for it for everybody else. And since there really are two serious sides to this argument, then let's make a debate of it. I'm John Donvan, a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We are in Chicago, Chicago Ideas Week. It is a pleasure to be here. The motion that's on the table, ration end-of-life care. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing for and against this motion. Our debate goes in three rounds, and then the audience votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. On the side arguing for the motion, ration end-of-life care, Arthur Kellerman, the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the RAND Corporation. His partner, Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. The motion, Ration End of Life Care, and here to argue against the motion, Ken Connor, Chairman and Founder of the Center for a Just Society. And his partner, Sally Pipes, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Pacific Research Institute. This is our motion, Ration End of Life Care, and let's meet our debaters. First, Dr. Arthur Kellerman. And Art, uh, you worked in and you taught emergency medicine for about a quarter of a century. That's the front lines in this, really. And I want to ask you, do you think the rest of us, uh, we civilians uh, in this world, really have any idea how often these end-of-life decisions come up in the ER? John, we save a lot more lives than we lose, but we deal with the issues we're going to debate tonight far more often than anyone realizes. Okay. And your partner, Peter Singer. Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics at Princeton, and you wrote in the New York Times a few years back that a system of rationing care should include measures of the quality of life, but not judgments about moral character or social value. Why not? Well, I think that's not the business of of physicians. Um, I think they can judge. There are ways of judging quality of life and life expectancy, but moral character is something different. It's, It's too subjective, I think. I wouldn't like to see it used as a criterion there. All right, Peter Singer. Our motion is this, ration end-of-life care, and here uh, to argue against the motion, first, Ken Connor. <laughs> Kenyon, you are chairman of the Center for a Just Society, and you played a major role in perhaps uh, the most well-known case that centered on end-of-life issues, the Terry Schiavo case, in which uh, uh, the nation and a family was divided over the question of whether to remove a feeding tube from a young woman. Uh, the president of, Flor- of uh, uh, sorry, the governor of Florida was empowered by a law called Terry's Law to become involved in that. What was your involvement in that story? I represented the governor in defending Terry's Law. And, and the fact that in the end your side lost? Terry's Law was struck down by the Florida Supreme Court Uh, Terry was ordered to die by starvation and dehydration. She did so over a 13-day period. If the court had ordered that of Ted Bundy, it would have been deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment because that's precisely what it was. And your partner, Sally Pipes, ladies and gentlemen. 
You are also, Sally, arguing against rationing end-of-life care. Now, you wrote a book called The, the Top Ten Myths of American Health Care. But what do you think is the number one myth about end-of-life care? Well, I think that one should not um, have to die earlier than one might um, in order to benefit society and reduce costs. People should have the right to die and to live as long as they can. So. All right. So we have already heard almost a taste of where this debate is going to go by listening, hearing all of, our, all of our debaters in these brief introductions. Now, in this debate, you, our live audience here in Chicago act as our judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote two times, once before the debate and once again after the debate, on where you stand on this motion. And the team who has moved the most of you to their side by the end of the evening and as a percentage term will be declared our winner. So let's have our preliminary vote. If you go to the keypads on your seat, you'll see a series of numbers, but you only need to pay attention to one, two, and three. We want to ask you to push number one if you agree with the motion, ration end-of-life care, the most side that this side is arguing for. If you agree at this point with this side, if you are against the motion, if you would disagree with the motion, ration end-of-life care, push number two. And if you are undecided at this point, push number three. And my guess is that the undecideds are who these debaters are really fighting for, but not necessarily. We have had a lot of debates where people said that they listened so closely that their minds were actually changed because the arguments were so good. So we're going to lock that out now. And again, at the end of the debate, we'll have you vote a second time, and the team whose numbers have changed most as a percentage will be declared our winner. So our motion is ration end of life care. And on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be seven minutes each. And speaking first for the motion, Arthur Kellerman, the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the RAND Corporation. Prior to this, he was a professor of emergency medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Kellerman. As you hear from each of us tonight, I urge you to not only listen to our arguments, but consider our different backgrounds and our different interests. Since 2010, I've worked for the RAND Corporation. RAND is an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization that's dedicated to objective analysis of some of the toughest policy questions confronting our country and the world. RAND analysts are expected to be dispassionate and detached. That's not a good way to win an Intelligence Squared debate. <laughs> so this morning, I advised RAND I was taking a day of annual leave. And I'm here tonight not as a RAND analyst, but as an ER doc, who, as John said, worked for 25 years taking care of severely ill, injured, and dying patients in some of our nation's busiest ERs. The goal of emergency medicine is always to save lives. But you would be surprised how often we have to make decisions in consultation with patients or their families about whether or not initiating heroic measures is in fact the right thing to do and what the patient really wants. It happens when a critically ill patient is rushed to the ER in the very last stages of a terminal illness. And that usually happens when the patient's personal physician, well, they never got around to having the conversation. They never got around to talking with the patient about what will they want us to do when they reach that point. So we end up having that conversation with the patient 
or with their loved ones at two o'clock in the morning in a family conference room or at the bedside. Now, from a medical or a business perspective, the easiest thing to do by far is just full court press. Start resuscitation, intubate the patient, roll out the breathing machine, put in IV lines. But, you know, it doesn't always accomplish what we want. And rather than prolonging life, it simply prolongs the process of dying. That's why when Intelligence Squared called me and asked if I would do this debate tonight, my answer was an immediate yes. Not only because of what the patient goes through, but what their family goes through too. Now to clarify what we're debating tonight, I think it's important for us to define just what we mean. What kind of end of life care are we talking about? Medical and surgical treatments that do not achieve a reasonable goal of medicine should not be used. Limiting this type of care is not rationing, it's good medicine. Many treatments are used to achieve goals that patients did not want or were not proportionate to the burdens that the treatment imposed because there was either ineffective communication about the disease prognosis, there was a failure to achieve adequate informed patient consent, or there was no advanced care planning. Avoiding these treatments is not rationing. It's simply rectifying poor quality care. Now, some treatments are desired, but they're extremely costly and have a very low chance of success. Declining to pay for such treatments is what most people would consider rationing, and my teammate, Professor Singer, will have more to say about that in a minute. But finally, there is one type of end-of-life care that is not used often enough. It's relatively inexpensive, it's highly valued by patients, and it's effective. It's palliative care. Palliative care is specialized care that's focused on relieving pain, relieving the burden of symptoms, helping a patient to be as comfortable and as functional as they can be as they approach the last days of their lives. Now, two years ago, a group of cancer specialists published an amazing study in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took a group of patients with a very serious type of lung cancer, and they randomly assigned it to two treatment groups. One treatment group got palliative care and standard cancer treatment. The other group got very aggressive, advanced cancer care, and they followed the two groups. The palliative care group not only had a better quality of life, and less depression prior to their death, they lived longer than the group that got aggressive treatment. This past August, another team followed nearly 400 cancer patients during their last months in life. Those that avoided hospitalization and avoided the intensive care unit were less worried. Those who prayed or meditated, those who were visited by their pastor in the hospital or in clinic, those who felt they had a strong bond with their doctors, were happier, had a higher quality of life, and did better in the last days that they had on this earth. So at the outset of this debate, let's assume that our opponents did not come here to defend bad medicine. And you can be confident that Professor Singer and I did not come here to advocate limiting access to palliative care. So that leaves us with a pretty narrow set of situations and a highly charged question. Do patients in the last stages of terminal illness have an unqualified right 
to extremely costly treatments of uncertain value for as long as they want. Because if the answer is yes, the rest of us have to be prepared to pay the price. Despite remarkable progress in medical science, the global death rate is still 100%. (laughs) So the question is not whether we're going to live or die. The question is where and how we'll die and who will be with us when we do. Most of us don't want to die in an intensive care unit strapped to a bed under fluorescent lights, separated from our loved ones. Yet that's precisely what happens to many of us because all too often our healthcare system is too focused on making money, too preoccupied with its technical prowess, and too busy to sit down with a patient and have an honest, thoughtful, candid conversation about prognosis and the patient's wishes at the end of life. As a physician, my goals are simple to save as many lives as I can, to ease pain and suffering when I cannot, and always, always treat my patients with compassion and respect. That's why at the end of this evening, I urge you to vote for the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur Kellerman. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and our first next speaker will be speaking against the motion, Sally Pipes. She is president and chief executive officer of the Pacific Research Institute. She also uh, writes a weekly health column for Forbes.com and is the author of The Pipes Plan, The Top Ten Ways to Dismantle and Replace Obamacare. Ladies and gentlemen, Sally Pipes. Thank you, John. And um, I'm against the proposition that we should, end, we should ration end-of-life care. My mother was Canadian and a senior. In July of 05, she felt she had colon cancer. Her primary care doctor said she did not because he did an x-ray and no cancer showed up. Well, we all know that colon cancer is not detected by an x-ray but by a colonoscopy. But she could not get one in Canada because of her age and the fact that a waiting list for people under 65 with colon cancer symptoms was over six months. So by late November, my mother was hemorrhaging and had lost 35 pounds. She knew she was ill, and she went to the hospital in an ambulance and went to the emergency room, spent two days in the transit lounge. Then she did get her colonoscopy. But sadly, she passed away two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. This is the outcome when government bureaucrats set the rules for who is going to get care and when. This is ration care and what will face seniors in America if the Affordable Care Act is not repealed and replaced. Rationing care at the end of life may be a sound solution in the abstract, but when it comes to your mother, your father, or your child who has a terminal illness, it is wrong for social engineers and government bureaucrats to make these life decisions for you. In Canada, where I grew up, the government spends 11.4% of gross domestic product on health care, and private health insurance is outlawed. The government sets a global budget, the one the government can afford. The demand for health care is much greater than the supply. As a result, Canadians spend a lo- they have long waiting lists, ration care, and lack of access to the latest treatments. of Canadians are waiting to get a primary care doctor. In 2011, 940,000 Canadians were on a waiting list waiting for treatment. 
The average wait in 2011 from seeing a primary care doctor to getting treatment by a specialist was 19 weeks, up from 18.2 weeks the year before. In the case of my own mother, it may have shortened her life, but it was definitely cheaper for the government. In the case of my mother, it may have shortened her life, but colon cancer is one of the common, most common uh, diseases among our seniors. A study published in the British journal Lancet Oncology suggests that America is one of the best countries for um, um, treating cancer and survival rates five years after diagnosis for 13 of the 16 most common cancers. Do we want to change this outcome by controlling health care costs through ration care? For example, breast cancer survival rates among, among American women is 83.5%, whereas in Britain, it's only 70%. Prostate cancer, survival rate 92% in the U.S., only 51% in Britain. So how will the Affordable Care Act ration care for our seniors, and in particular, those in need of health care? In three ways, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, Accountable Care Organizations, and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. First, IPAB. On October 3rd, President Obama and Governor Romney spent a lot of time debating the issue of IPAB. IPAB will be a panel of 15 unelected members appointed by the President and approved by the Senate whose job it is to cut Medicare spending. It will go into effect when federal spending by doctors and hospitals on Medicare exceeds the average consumer price index growth rate between 2014 and 2018. After that, costs will be tied to GDP growth plus 1%. The board must propose spending cuts. Congress could overrule the board, but only if it has a three-fifths majority in the Senate and the House or comes up with another plan to reduce costs. The uh, Accountable Care Organizations is second. They are a delivery model for doctors and hospitals and to give them financial incentives to provide good quality, coordinated care to Medicare beneficiaries while keeping costs down. They would benefit by sharing in savings with the government if costs are lower than projected for treating Medicare patients. If higher, ACOs would have to pay back funds to the government. It is my belief that doctors and hospitals will ration or deny care to seniors if they feel that their costs would exceed the ceiling. ACOs are a giant HMO. Third is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. It is similar to NICE in the UK, a government agency that determines which treatments are cost-effective as compared to medically effective. While no one can deny that there are problems in American health care, a system that empowers doctors and patients will solve them not the federal government. I do think that everyone here would agree we all want affordable, accessible, quality care. How do we achieve that goal? Well, I believe there are two competing visions when it comes to health care reform and achieving universal coverage. One focuses on doctors and patient-centered solutions. The other focuses on increasing the role of government in our health care system. That was President Obama's vision. Liberal politicians academics and the elite media tell Americans that socialized systems such as exist in Canada and in Europe 
are better and cheaper and can provide universal coverage for all. And while it is true that 5% or 2.5 million seniors in their last year of life consume 25% of Medicare spending, it is still my belief it is not the government's place to limit costs by sacrificing lives. End-of-life decisions should be made by doctors and families, not bureaucrats such as those on IPAB and PCORI. They will ration the care our seniors receive, and I believe that is ethically and morally wrong. In my view, people have every right to live as long as they can. Therefore, I urge you to vote against the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Sally Pipes. And uh, a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, Ration End of Life Care. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, Ration End of Life Care, the Ira W. W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He's been called the most influential living philosopher by The New Yorker and is the author of a number of books, including (coughs) The Life You Can Save and Animal Liberation. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Singer. Thank you very much. It's the position of our side that we are already rationing health care. So in a sense, we cannot really debate whether we should do so. The question that we can discuss is whether we should be open and explicit about what we're doing and therefore try to do it in the best, most thought-out way possible, which essentially means do it in the way that gets the best value for the health dollars that we're spending now, or whether we should continue to do it in a way that we don't bring out in the open, that we cover up, that we don't really dare to discuss, and we can see that politically it's not really a topic that that people dare to discuss openly. And as a result, more people will die who could be saved than will die if we use the money we're spending effectively. Now, it's clear that we are not spending our health dollars effectively in this country at present. We spend about between 17 to 18% of uh, everything we have, of our gross national product, on on health care. That's about 50% more than other comparable countries, the other industrialised countries that uh, we compare ourselves with. There is no evidence no evidence that we get any better outcomes for the extra 50% that we're spending, the extra 7 or 8% of of, uh, GDP that we're spending, than those other countries. And uh, Dr. Kellerman will give you a more detailed rebuttal to what Sally Pipes just said when she specifically focused uh, on cancer in, in those remarks. We when we look not just at uh, what the health system does, but at health outcomes in America, we're actually terrible. Um, it's, the, it's the combination of what the health system does and our general health. We rank, in terms of health outcomes, somewhere around the level of countries like Slovenia and Costa Rica. They are countries that are much poorer than we are, and yet their health outcomes are comparable to ours. And the other industrialised nations have better health outcomes. 
including, incidentally, Canada. Um, it's, also true, it's also true that when you ask Canadians, as Gallup did a couple of years ago, and Americans and Britons, people in the UK, do they have confidence in their healthcare system? The Britons and the Canadians, 73% of them, just coincidentally the same number, say yes, they do. When you ask Americans, only 56% of them say they do. I think that there's a general feeling that this healthcare system is not delivering what we want. But as I said, it is rationing. It rations in many ways. For example, we have about 44 million people, Americans now, who are not insured at all. That number will drop significantly when Obamacare comes into effect, but it will not, unfortunately, drop to zero. Now, not being insured means that you are more likely to die if you have a serious illness or accident. In fact, uh, Joseph Doyle, a uh, MIT scientist, looked at people who were brought into emergency care as a result of uh, road accidents, uh, seriously injured, and found that those who were uninsured died at a higher rate, even when adjusting for other variables, than those who had insurance. And when he calculated how much it would have cost to save these people's lives, it would have been about $280,000. Reasonable amount of money, but that was how much more was spent on saving the lives of the others. But given that these are mostly fairly young people, in terms of how, many, how much it would have cost to extend their life for one year, it would be about $5,500. These people's lives were lost because we were not prepared to spend $5,500 for each year of life that we could have saved. Compare that with the amount that those much-criticised bodies, uh, Sally Pipes mentioned NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom, what they say is too much to spend. Currently, NICE's figure is around $49,000. In other words, almost 10 times, 9 times as much as would have saved the lives of these young accident victims. And, of course, we ration in a lot of other ways as well um, because some people can't afford co-payments, we have long waiting times, we don't pay doctors enough for Medicare and so they don't take uh, Medicare patients, so they don't take so many Medicare patients. So we are losing lives and we are losing lives that we could save quite cheaply. So I think we ought to be more explicit about this. We ought to be prepared to say, let's use the dollars we spend. Maybe we should spend more dollars. I'm not necessarily opposed to spending more dollars. But let's use the dollars we spend in the most effective way in order to save the greatest number of lives. Something has to be done because healthcare costs are rising here much faster than the economy is growing. They're rising at 9.8% per annum. We all know the economy is not growing at anything like that amount. So if that keeps happening, what's going to happen? It will eventually soak up all available spending. But we know that government has to spend on other things. Um, on the website, in the articles of, of, that were posted, there's a very moving piece by Ken Connor about the plight of elderly citizens in our country, how they are neglected, and how, because of the pop, uh, demographic changes, there's going to be more of them. Effectively, we need to spend a lot more to give our senior citizens a comfortable and dignified life when they can no longer look after it themselves. That costs money, 
and it's going to cost more money. We cannot increase healthcare spending uh, indefinitely and also spend more on the elderly and spend more on the environment, on education, on all of the other important things that we need. So, like it or not, we are rationing healthcare. We are arguing that indeed we should, that's obvious, but that, but that we should be more explicit about it because we want to get the best results we can. We want to save the most number of lives that we can and the way to do that is to be explicit and vote yes for this motion. We should be rationing health care. Thank you. Thank you, Peter Singer. Our motion is ration end-of-life care and our final debater will be speaking against this motion. That's Ken Connor. Ken is chairman and founder of, a center, of the Center for a Just Society. He is a successful trial lawyer. He represented Governor Jeb Bush in the long-running Terry Schiavo case and for several years served as president of the Family Research Council. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Connor. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Sally Pipe's mother's situation is Exhibit A to why Americans don't want to, the government to wind up rationing health care in this country. By contrast, my mom suffered from advanced colon cancer late in life at an older age than Sally's mom. She received aggressive treatment, both surgery and chemotherapy, made a full recovery, and went on to live more than a decade of a good and healthy life until she finally died at 90 at home in good health in her own bed. Which system would you prefer? Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to make three points, if I may, about why government should not be in the business of rationing health care. First of all, that health care decisions should be made at the end of life, just as at any other point in life, at the bedside by the people involved and who are affected, not by bureaucrats at a remote location. Secondly, that rationing is unethical because it ultimately devalues human life and inevitably winds up punishing the sick and the dying. Thirdly, that rationing is the lazy man's, way, uh, uh, lazy man's attempt to balance the budget. It's easier to balance the budget on the backs of the sick and dying than it is to reform your ways of wasteful spending in government and try to wrench money back from the hands of the special interests at home and abroad. So back to the premises, first of all, that health care decisions should be made at the bedside. Americans don't want bureaucratic bean counters in Washington making decisions about what kind of care they're going to wind up receiving at the end of life. Decisions about health care and how it ought to be administered and when it ought to be administered ought to be decisions that are made by the patients, informed by their doctors and by their families. The decisions about what kind of care ought to be administered at any given time to any given patient uh, should take into account the needs of the patient. In other words, health care should be both individualized and particularized to the needs of the given patient. A bureaucrat, remote from the bedside, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles away, practicing assembly line medicine simply is not in a position to make those kinds of individualized decisions that are required. These are decisions that have to be made real time, sometimes at 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. in the morning, as Dr. Kellerman has pointed out. And it's the people who have their feet on their floor 
on the floor in the hospital and their hands on the patient who ought to be making these decisions. There's simply no way that a government functionary uh, practicing assembly line medicine in Washington can make those kinds of decisions. Health care requires the fine edge of a scalpel, not the blunt end of an axe. And patients don't want their doctor straightjacketed by some bureaucratic straitjacket fashioned in the federal city. Uh, they, want, uh, th- they want decisions made by doctors who are taking their interests into account. They don't want some interest that was decided in a smoke-filled room in Washington in a room that was predominated by lobbyists to be the ones who are making the decisions. And folks, do we really want men who are wearing the green eye shades in Washington to be making these kinds of decisions? Should cost be the primary driver of such decision, especially in the zero-sum environment that prevails in Washington? I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that when the trade-offs are made, we don't want decisions about health care to go by the board in preference to a new start in green energy or some other uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of effort. Now, no one is suggesting for a moment that we should not be good stewards of scarce health care resources. We absolutely should be, but rationing is not what we need. It's rational care. We ought to be asking ourselves, is the procedure under consideration necessary for the patient? Is it clinically appropriate? Is the cost reasonable compared to similar services? These are questions that ought to be answered by people with their feet on the ground in the hospital in real time by hospitalization, hospital utilization committees and not by people who are remote from the bedside. Now, folks, make no mistake about it. Government rationing represents the first step down the road to the utilitarian philosophy of former Colorado Governor Richard Lamb, who said, the elderly have a duty to die and get out of the way. This philosophy sees the elderly and the handicapped as resource hogs whose useful life is over and who now cost more to maintain than they produce. They reject the sanctity of life ethic that has long prevailed in this country and that maintains that every human life is precious and ought to be respected and protected under the law. That view affirms equal protection for all, for the whole and the handicapped, for the very young and for the very old. Instead, the quality of life advocates maintain that we should use quality of life calculus and functional capacity studies in deciding who lives and who dies. Of course, the elderly and the handicapped who suffer from dementia and disability don't score well using their formulas. And isn't that the point? Ladies and gentlemen, what criteria will the all-wise bureaucrats use to pick winners and losers at the end of life? Will they be any more successful than they were in picking Solyndra and Bright Source and Abound Solar on whom the government squandered billions of dollars. But then again, what does it matter? At the end of life, we're all losers, right? Folks, I would suggest to you that there are many places that we can look to find the savings that we need to provide appropriate care for the sick and for the dying. For heaven's sakes, we spent $4 trillion on the Wall Street bailout 
to rescue businesses that engaged in profligate spending practices. Surely we can spend the money required to render appropriate health care to the sick and the dying. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge you to vote against the proposition because by the time you reach the end of your life, you'll be glad you did. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Connor. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we move on to round two. And round two is where the debaters address each other directly and also answer questions from me and from you in the audience. We have two teams of two. Arthur Kellerman and Peter Singer are arguing for the motion, ration end-of-life care. And we have heard them say basically that we already are rationing, that health care is rationed right now by the ability to pay for it by the individual, and that it is time to be explicit, to ration in a different way, to step up and admit that's what we're doing and figure out a system for doing it. Uh, They say that you need to figure out how much saving a life uh, produces in terms of results. You have to compare that to how the resources could be used elsewhere. Uh, The team arguing against the motion, Sally Pipes and Ken Connor, argue that um, rationing end-of-life care is the wrong way to balance the budget. They say that it would be falling to government bureaucrats to make intensely personal decisions, that cost should not be the driver of a decision regarding the end of life, and that they depict a future where basically the elderly will be thrown overboard. Now, I I noticed that the two sides do agree that costs cutting needs to happen, that costs are out of control. They do agree that ideally these decisions will be made at the bedside by doctors and their families. The question is, who ends up controlling where the money comes from. And I want to put to the side arguing in support of rationing end-of-life care, and particularly to Peter Singer, this basic question, is there a way actually to arrive at a dollar value for what a few more months of life would be worth to an elderly person versus what it would be worth to a younger person? And does that explain whether, uh, does that price carry over to whether a procedure is worth pursuing or not? Can you put a dollar number on these things? It's very difficult to agree on dollar numbers. I mean, health care economists try to do it um, because really what they're doing is they're comparing what you get for your money if you spend it on one thing, um, let's say saving young people's lives, and what you get for your dollar if you spend it on something else, um, perhaps uh, Avastin, say, for cancer where it can only extend life by uh, two or three months at significant expense. And I think what they can clearly say is we get better value in some cases rather than others. We extend life for longer for the same amount or we extend life for an equal amount for less money. And and you you said in your opening remarks that younger lives are less expensive, generally speaking, to save than older lives with with the outcome of a longer life lived because the person's younger rather than older. Am I I reading you correctly? Well, I think most of us would agree that it's a greater tragedy if a 20-year-old dies um, because they were in an accident and didn't have health insurance than if an 85-year-old dies. I think, uh, you know, we would feel that people have... um, lived most of their life, achieved most of what they were going to achieve when they die in their 80s, let's say. Um, It's still sad, of course. I I know it's sad. Um, But it's it's a greater tragedy. It's it's worth spending more to prevent if we can save the life of somebody who still has most of their life in front of them and still has a lot of things that they can achieve. All right. I'd like you to respond to that in light of your saying in your opening remarks that each of us has the right to live as long as we can. Does age 
come into it? Do the, young, do, the, do the younger have more of a right to live as long as they can than the older? No, I believe we all have the right to live as long as we can. Only when someone has died can we actually measure the cost of what the cost of keeping that person alive is. But I think that people should be able to get the best health care they can and, and, and not have their care rationed uh, by government bureaucrats. But, you know, we all want to live longer lives, have affordable, accessible, quality care. How do we do that? Well, we have to make some changes to our health care system. I believe in empowering doctors and patients, making changes to Medicare and Medicaid, um, changing the tax treatment, because for people who have... Sally, can I interrupt? Because you made that point in your opening statement, and, and I want to kind of keep on this, on this, this question that, that the other side has raised about, and you, and you were beginning on it, on this question of older versus younger. Um, that they're, what they're constructing is the notion that if you save the life of a person who then lives for 50 years, that therefore there's more value in that than saving the life of a person who lives for two years. You get 25 more years of life out of it. And it's a mathematical calculation. And I want to know how that sits with you, that to take math and dollars and dollar figures to apply to these very sensitive issues. Well, I guess I would say I don't think we should be using mathematics to determine this. We should give people the best opportunity to get the best care that they can regardless of their age. I mean, if you take an issue like infant mortality, people at WHO and the Commonwealth Fund will say, well, infant mortality is much higher in the U.S. than it is in in countries in Europe. But you have to compare apples with apples. You know, Americans have, we have the best neonatal care um, when you, when children live survive a lot more in this country because they have this good neonatal care. In countries in Europe, they determine that if a fetus or a newborn is under a certain uh, weight and a certain length, they're not counted as a live birth. So I think we don't want to put dollars and cents on this. We want to give everyone the best possible care, and how we get there is what we can talk about a bit later. All right, and Ken Connor, your partner. John, I'd like to weigh in against that kind of uh, calculus. Uh, In America, we hold to the proposition that all men are created equal. Equal protection of the law is a hallmark of American justice. And I would suggest to you that any point of view that says that uh, a person's uh, dignity diminishes with age or that somehow their personhood erodes as they get older is a point of view, really, that is a bankrupt point of view. And inevitably, that point of view will endanger everyone who reaches old age or anyone who should suffer from the slings and arrows of misfortune and wind up suffering a serious illness or injury. But, but we haven't said their dignity is, is less or that their personhood Peter is less. Sir. What we've said is that they have less lives, less years to live. And well, that's Peter, a different you, question. You, I, I, let, let me comment. ask you this uh, point, if I may. You've been an apologist in your book, in your books for infanticide, making the point that disabled infants who lacked Uh, rationality or the capacity to uh, grasp that uh, they existed over time uh, or that they lacked some form of self-consciousness were somehow not persons and could be disposed of. Indeed, you've gone so far as to make that argument about all all newborn infants maintaining that within a period of, say, 28 days after birth, parents should be able to decide to uh, get rid of them or not. Point now, my order. question would be... Point of order. Yeah, this would, is not would you, the topic we're debating. Tonight. My well, question I, I, would I wanna, be, would I you apply... I, I, no, it is the topic. I, it's precisely. I, I want to give Ken a chance to relate it. And here's the point I would okay. make. Old people who suffer from dementia often lack self-awareness, 
They often lack the capacity for rationality. They often lack the capacity to grasp the notion that they exist over time. Would you declare them non-persons and say that they are not worthy of protection and preservation, as you have in the case of okay, Art, Art Kellerman, because I'm, I'm not hearing you actually, I'm not hearing them make the argument in that extreme I, way, but I want to I I, see what Art I, does I just say. got to get a couple of things sorted out here. I'm, I'm easily confused. First of all, I want to make sure I came to the right debate tonight. Because I came here to debate whether how we approach into life care. I, I did not. I just want to make sure I'm at the right debate because I'm not here to debate Solyndra, Wall Street, Obamacare, or the presidential election, right? I just, I, I'm just confused. Well, but I'm Southern and we're easily confused. So second question is, are we here to debate an elderly person's right to super expensive care paid for by the government versus simply very expensive care that we all agree is probably a reasonable deal? Or are we here to debate whether or not poor people and other folks can get decent care versus no care? Because I personally believe in the sanctity of life, but I think the sanctity of life extends beyond birth and goes all the way up and doesn't sort of kick in again the last few weeks before death. It extends throughout life for the uninsured, the poor, and working class folks, too. And they should be part of the discussion. Well, that's that's precisely my point. And the point is we're going to use some kind of criteria to decide who lives and who dies. And, for instance, if the eminent Dr. Singer were to become the rationer in chief in the next administration, what criteria would he use? Would we look at the elderly, the demented, the disabled, and say, that their quality of life years don't merit preserving their lives? Would we say that, as in the case of the infants that he's identified, that they are not persons whose lives are worthy of protection and preservation? Ideas have consequences. What we believe determines how we behave. And this logic applies at the end of life no less so than at the beginning of life. Let's take one the specific part of your question that relates most closely to this motion to, to Peter and you know, if you were the rationer in chief, That's do you have not a do you, very likely scenario? No, it's un- unlikely to happen for any of us. But do, do you have a system, or do you have the the outlines of a system? Do you have a philosophy about how this should be approached? I would try to look at the number of years that we can ex- expect to extend people's lives for a given number of dollars. I would also try to look at the quality of life as well. Now, that certainly may be affected by dementia. But in addition, especially with with older people, I would hope that they would be encouraged to state their own wishes as to what should happen to them if they become demented. But Peter, assuming you're correct that you're not going to get the job, um, (laughs) what body do you see making the decisions? So I think actually, although it's much criticized, I think that the UK model of setting up, they have a national institute for for clinical excellence. Uh, Sally referred to it by its acronym, NICE. Not everybody thinks it's NICE. But um, what they do is they try to cost the various treatments that are out there, and they try to get expert data on how long uh, those treatments extend life in a variety of different conditions. And they make recommendations. They're not binding, but they make recommendations to the local area health authorities throughout the United Kingdom to suggest that uh, this treatment does give good value for money. You should be providing it. Uh, But perhaps this treatment for this specific condition is above the bar that we think reasonable, and you may consider not providing that. 
and the health authorities then reach those decisions. And how, how often, if you happen to know, how often is there a recommendation not to use a particular intervention or treatment? Is it uncommon or is it pretty common? Uh, it's relatively common that there are some treatments for some specific conditions that are considered too expensive uh, to provide. And I think that that's going to be inevitable because medical technology really has no limits to how much it can cost. And, and the drug companies can charge more. In fact, drugs are much cheaper in the United Kingdom because the manufacturers know that if they price them very high, they're not going to be recommended by NICE. Okay. Whereas here, they can basically charge whatever they like, and they're still going to get used. Let's hear from your opponent, Sally, Sally Pipes. Right. So um, you are a proponent of NICE, which I think the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is, is patterned after. But if you read the British press about people, the quality-adjusted value of life, if you're, say, 68 years old and the, the actuaries within the National Health Service bureaucracy say your, your life is worth $49,000. You may be, uh, have been diagnosed with a, a severe cancer, um, macular degeneration, but if the drugs to take care of this are costing more than $49,000, you are denied care in the United Kingdom. Read the British press, the Daily Telegraph, the Daily Mail, any of it. People are complaining all the time. Even ex-employees at the National Health Service will say it's wrong that we cannot get the care we need because it may be medically effective, but it's not cost-effective. And on the issue of pharmaceuticals and medical, device, uh, medical devices, yes, drugs and medical devices are cheaper in Canada and in the UK and other countries in Europe. They don't develop these drugs and medical devices. The United States is the entrepreneurial capital for developing drugs and pharmaceuticals. Pharmaceuticals cost about $1.3 billion from the idea until it gets through. These other countries, Canada, Britain, they free ride off our R&D. And so, it is wrong. Sally, um, one question I have for you when you were describing what the British are doing and saying no to certain, certain procedures that are not considered cost-effective or, or not effective enough to justify the cost. Right. Don't insurance companies do that all the time? Well... Yes, insurance companies make decisions based on actuarial evidence. Would you prefer the government to be making decisions about what drugs and treatments you can, or would you prefer the private sector and insurance companies to make those decisions? I personally want insurance companies. I prefer the insurance companies. Well, and, and insur you know, let's, let's show some respect to this. Can you, can you, why would you prefer the private sector to do it to the government? Because the private sector provides all things that we, we can make decisions about what kind of cell phones we want, what kind of bank accounts we want. The private sector has always been good. The problem in this country is that 50% of our health care today is already in the hands of government through Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, and the VA system. We don't have a private market. We need to move to a freer market. Get insurance away from employers. Sixty percent of Americans have their health care through their employer. And if they don't like the plan or whatever, you're stuck with that. But if you lose your job, you lose your insurance, you go out into the private market, you have to buy your insurance with after-tax dollars. I want to see the tax code change so that we can move to a more individualized basis on health insurance, just like our car insurance, our life insurance, our long-term care insurance. This is the way America works. It's what makes America great. And we don't want to move to a Canadian-style single-payer system, which I think the President, Nancy Pelosi, and Harry Reid, that is their ultimate goal. Let, let we ask, will Ken, have Medicare let me ask for your, all. Let me ask your um, partner, uh, Ken Connor, this point. I mean, I mean, we do have smaller versions of single-payer systems. We have Medicare. We have the Veterans Administration. They have to make decisions. They have to cut costs. Do they need to, do they need to have a system of rationing? 
in the system that exists now as opposed to as opposed to what you're proposing as a solution, which just is not the world that we're in today? Well, I think, I think it's important to understand as a practical matter uh, the truth of the notion that uh, uh, he who pays the piper gets to call the tune. And so as a practical matter, whoever's making those payments in large measure is going to call the shots. What we advocate, though, in contrast to a central bureaucratized, central planning decision-making process is that we have consumer-driven decision-making informed by medical advice, mediated by markets. We believe that that system is a better system than the government system. We believe that that system is a better system and that, those, that that's a better way to make decisions than relegating it to the people who brought us the bridge to nowhere, Solyndra, the Wall Street bailout. Now... Look, look, folks, plain and simple, there's an economic concept that our physician friend may not be aware of. It's called opportunity cost. And, and your proposition assumes the fallacy of only two alternatives. Either we recoup the money from the sick and dying or we don't. But there, my point is there are other ways to recoup the money from other areas where we are wasting money and it's much easier to balance budgets on the back of the sick and dying than to rest it out of the hands of the special interests in Washington. Arthur Kellerman. I'm real glad I got a chance to talk. Um, <clears throat> My let's, apologies. Let's, let's talk for just a moment about Exhibit A. Sally, I, as a doctor, I've got to tell you, I've heard that story before. And remind, I don't think... Remind people just tuning in to what oh, Sally yes. said was Exhibit the, A. The story earlier about your mother not getting the colonoscopy right. she needed. And in I, Canada. I, I feel badly about what happened. But I have to tell you, I don't think a government bureaucrat was the one who made the mistake. I think you got a bad doc. And, and the fact of the matter is, I know this may come as a shock, sometimes Canadians screw up. If they didn't, we'd never win the Stanley Cup. Right. Well, um, you have to agree. Our Canadians are really nice people. Yeah. And they, they're Connor, very patient, not like impatient Americans, yeah. which I Mr. am Connor, now. Mr. Connor, I'm with you brother on the market incentives. So let me suggest a market-based solution to what we're talking about. I think there's a big difference between deciding what we as a society can afford to commit folks to get, whether it's in an ICU at the end of the life or whether it's at 25 years old when you're trying to get your first job and starting a family. And let's commit to that level of financial protection and coverage that we all kind of want to buy into. If beyond that, whatever that is, whatever we as a country decide we are prepared to shoulder, you can buy it. Sally, you could buy it. If you want a Vastin and it's worth $100,000 a year to pay for it out of your pocket and you want to use your children's inheritance, go for it. It's okay with me, but I've got a problem with you using our inheritance to buy your Vastin if we don't have the evidence that it makes a difference. So let's have a market-based solution. That's the deal today that 50 million uninsured Americans get, except they don't even get a basic level of coverage. It's all out of pocket, or it's on the charity and mercy of individual doctors and hospitals. That's a pretty lousy deal. Sally Pipes. Well, when you analyze the 48.6 million Americans who are uninsured, it doesn't mean they don't get health care. Anyone in this country under MTALA, the federal law, can turn up at an emergency room. I as know, Art we knows, take care of get care. So, But let's look at that 48.6 million. 14 million of them are people who are eligible for Medicaid and CHIP and haven't signed up. 
We're going to be adding 11 to 12 million more to Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. Why have these people not signed up for Medicaid? Well, I believe doctors are reimbursed 35 to 42 percent below what they get from treating private patients. So Medicaid patients find it very difficult to get a doctor. This is only going to get worse. The other point is that there are about 20 million of these people are people that are young people, like a lot of you in this audience. You're between 18 and 31. You're the young invincibles. You don't want to spend four to five hundred dollars a month on health care, so you don't. You'll pay out of pocket when you. When, when you need it. There are only about 9 million Americans who are chronically ill without health insurance for a period of two years or more. Those are the people that I want to take care of and that we should be taking care of. But, you know, in the UK, in a country, if you decide that you want to buy a Vastin because the actuaries have said your quality-adjusted value of life is not worth the 80 to 90,000 a year for a Vastin, you can pay out of pocket, but you are then out of the National Health Service. The government says you cannot get any more treatment from the government. And I feel that is not fair to... Yeah, we, don't, we don't support that system. I mean, that's I not... know, but this is what, under the PCORI, under IPAB, under Accountable Care, this is what is going to happen well, to people right, Peter, in this country. Let me, bring in Peter's, let me bring in Peter Singer. Well, let me just say, I mean, I've spent most of my life in Australia, as you can probably tell from the funny way I speak. Um, and we have universal health coverage, but we also have private insurance. It's not like Canada. You're not out of the... Um, Medicare, as we call it. You're not out of that scheme by taking out private insurance. It just gives you, if you want to do that, extra coverage for various things that you, know, you, you can do. So it's an option. And All right. I, I don't feel I'm doing a very good job as moderator tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, because uh, I, I want to shape this back to what we're talking about as a trade-off of what you get for what you pay, and are you willing to pay it? And is it wrong to deny that payment? And, I, you know, um, Ken Connor, you, you actually did put your finger on it when you said that, you know, he, he was paying the, the cost, gets to call the tunes on this. And right now we are in a world where uh, Medicare is taking care of an awful lot of people, and it's very expensive. We know a crisis is coming. Given where we are on that, their argument that at some point you have to say no and let's figure out a way to say no, and let's make it fair for everybody, which is the principle of rationing. When there's not enough of something to go around, you set up a system so that everybody gets an equal shot at it, but everybody doesn't get all of what they want. Just, your, just that concept. What, what do you think of, you know, what, what is wrong with that? Because I know you think that it's wrong. Right. Well, well, I think you're talking about fundamental fairness here. Uh, and let, let's think of it in these terms. How fair is it when you pay into something all your life, you get to the end of your life when you really need it, and you've been told that you're paying in to receive health care, and you get down to the point when you really need it and, say, and, and the government says, sorry, you're going to cost us too much. Isn't there a fundamental fairness issue uh, in that regard? No, we're going to take the money that you paid in over time, over all these years, and we're going to give it to younger people because they don't need as much of it as you do. Isn't that why we paid into it all of our lives? And right. isn't, that, isn't that part of of fundamental fairness is getting what you pay for. Okay, and the question I want to put to this side out of this is that he's actually portraying what sounds like a very ugly situation. You're old. You've you got two years left. we got a limited amount of money. That group of kids over there, they've got all their lives in front of you. Sorry, Charlie, you're off the boat. It does sound ugly, nasty, and very hard to take, and I want you to take on that side of the argument. Well, the only problem is that's not how it works, and that's not what we're talking about. Well, it is what we're talking about. Um, I mean, about. we're talking about, again... No, it is, it, but Art, it, it, it may not be what, how it works. Yeah. You can correct me on that, but we, we are talking about having to make these hard choices and saying no to some people. Yeah, what, no, what we're saying is we want to give everybody 
good, decent, high-quality, evidence-based medicine and care, including and especially palliative care at the end of life. But if you want a super expensive drug or an unorthodox treatment that costs a freaking fortune, and it is way beyond what we think as a society, private insurance's actuaries or the government's actuaries or the Institute of Medicine says is reasonable, then we should not, as a society, be obliged to go along for the ride. You should be able to pay for that out of pocket or in any other way you want to do it. That's a fundamental difference in saying, no, you can't have it at all. And let me remind you, we talked about wasteful spending but, but, earlier. But it, wasn't Peter describing a situation in the U.K. where they, they, they do look at specific treatments and they say, if you want to stay in the national health, you can't have it at all? Well, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought we were in the United States. No, so but, but, but Peter, Peter, yeah. Peter used the United Kingdom system as an example, so I think it's well, on the table. I, yeah, but let me just mention something that I think we've got to put on the table because I don't know how much time we're going to have. A, a, a cynical colleague of mine once said, Americans don't mind throwing people overboard. They just don't like to hear the splash. <laughs> and there are an awful lot of people that are getting thrown overboard every day in this country that we're not debating about tonight. All right, but, that's, but that no, is no, not no, the it, debate it's, tonight. It's really important. Sally told a story. I'll just briefly tell a story. Early in my career, I saw a woman in her 30s, a mother of three, who rolled in the door with a hemorrhagic stroke. Her blood vessel burst in her brain. She was neurologically devastated. We intubated her. We did everything that Sally and Kib would want. We gave her a full court, all out, best we could humanly do, and we could not save her life. I went to break the news to her sisters, and they told me that three weeks earlier she'd lost her job, lost her coverage, could not afford her three blood pressure medicines, and was forced to choose between groceries for her kids or medicine for herself. She chose her kids, like any mother in this audience would choose, and she paid for it with her life. Her life had value. She died. We spent more money in the last three hours of a completely futile effort to save her life than could have kept her in blood pressure medicine her whole life, raised her kids, paid her taxes, contributed to our country. Those people matter, too. Should she have... Should she have should, I, w I want to go to questions from the audience, but I just want to finish this up. Should she have been denied that service since it didn't make sense economically? What? The, the extraordinary effort to save No, because life. early on you don't know how things are going to turn out. And, and you, but at some point you say, and again, what we said at our start opening conversation here is the most important discussion to have is between a physician and the patient with an honest sharing of information. I get pulled in to an industrial complex of modern medicine. Just remember, we were talking about the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare earlier. One of the first provisions that got knocked out of it was one that would have given doctors a little money every six months to encourage them to have a conversation with their patient. And you know what we called it, folks? We called it a death panel. What the hell was that about? Let me ask you this, doctor. I don't know, I don't know 10 doctors in America that thought that was a good idea to knock that out. I'm going to let Ken respond. Let, I let think me. you're going with a question. So yeah, make let, it a question. Let me ask you this, Dr. Kellerman, if I may. You, you've made the point, and you've written about it, and it's a good point, that some 15,000 people die, estimated, every year because of the lack of insurance coverage. Easy. The it's Institute of Medicine estimates that 100,000 people die a year from medical malpractice. 
Are you willing to be as aggressive about reforming medical malpractice and ensuring that physicians meet the standard of care for those 100,000 as you are to argue for the, for the uh, thousands who don't uh, survive because of the lack of insurance? Absolutely. Good. Sign me up. Good. And you know All what? Right. And while we're at it, let's, let's cut out the $750 billion a year that the Institute of Medicine says our health care system, the one I work in, is wasting due to inefficiency, Wasteful management, missed opportunities, prevention, and fraud. $750 billion, folks, we audience? can do a lot of good with that money. Ma'am, right there. And if, you, if you'll wait a second, uh, Mike will come to you, and you can stand up if you wouldn't mind telling us your name. And just wait for the mic. Thanks. Uh, I have a question for Sally. Uh, Sally, you... Can, can you tell us uh, who you oh, are? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, my name is Judith Alexander. Um, Sally, you were running through how many people are uninsured who could actually receive government assistance if they um, applied for it. But aren't you being inconsistent because aren't you against a single payer? And yet you seem to be advocating that uh, many of the uninsured take advantage of um, the programs that, that really are single payer. Well, First of all, um, I, I, I'm going to pass on the question because I don't think this goes to the issue of rationing unless oh, you want to rephrase. Okay. Don't single payers ration? Yes, definitely, in terms of ration care, waiting lists, and lack of access to the latest treatments. Everyone in America is entitled to health care by turning up at an emergency room. And the real, the hidden tax is not on um, the um, uninsured, it's on the low reimbursement rates to, by uh, government to doctors and hospitals. That adds about 10% to the cost of an insurance plan by people who have a private plan. The uninsured only adds 1% to the cost of premium for those who have insurance. Response from the other side? You don't need to if you don't want to. Another um, question? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Art, Art Kellerman. Sorry. No, I just... We don't do a really good job of giving chemotherapy and doing a lot of other stuff in ERs. I, I mean, I, I love practicing emergency medicine. That is the last place that poor and uninsured Americans should have to go to get their health care. It doesn't make any sense, and it never has. Um, Peter Singer, did you want to? And we, you know, um, I mean, it just boggles the mind. I, I'm sorry. I'll have to recalibrate. I've heard some things that have really got me kind of spinning on this side, and I need a moment to figure them out. All right. I, sir, I, thank you. Yes. Yes. Hi. Uh, my name is Patrick Batchelor. Hi. Uh, to, first to Sally, um, your story was both tragic, I think, and irrelevant, unfortunately. Obamacare is very different than the Canadian model, both in terms of who pays for it as well as how it's structured. But to the other side, I think... Hey. So don't, don't debate the debaters, please. Just ask a question. Okay. Go ahead. Put the question yeah. now. The, the trick part of the question, I think, tonight is, do we really know when end of life is until we get there? There are many, many cases. I mean, I never try to predict for an individual patient. But what I do tell a patient is, this is the situation. This is what could happen. What do you think is the right thing to do? And I respect their wishes, and I respect the family's wishes. But you've got to give them honest information. You've got to give people a sense of odds. So Everybody is, the, is one or zero as an individual, but the odds and the outcome and the prognosis really matter, and people need to understand what they're signing up for. Ken talked earlier about cruel and unusual punishment. If we took prisoners on death row and subjected them to a week in an American ICU, the Supreme Court would rule that unconstitutional. So it's important to make your choice based on your values. 
And my advice to you, sir, is to go home tonight and talk to your wife and kids and tell them what you want at the end of the life so they'll be there to represent your views. Sir, was, I just want to understand, was the thrust of your question, who knows what, what a procedure is going to produce? Okay. All right. So I think it was answered. Thank you. Sir, uh, go ahead. Hi. My name is Tom Oseal. Uh, great job, everybody. It was very entertaining. Um, I'm holding my phone because uh, I wrote the question on here. But uh, Could, you, could you hold the mic a little closer? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Sorry about that. Um, thinking in two hypotheticals. One, we're thinking 60 years down the road, and the other being that the stereotype that Gen Y all think they're special is true. Um, what, which scenario do you think would be more likely... A, as a result of our lives being so special that the pool of end-of-life candidates would become so extreme down the road that we'd have no choice but to make reforms and have this discussion in ration life care. Or B, would, as a result of having such a comfortable life, would the, would the effects of the suffering that goes on during end-of-life become so extreme where the conversation actually switches to uh, can people, do people have the capacity for, to choose euthanasia, for example? Would there be a demand for that? Let's uh, take Ken Connor first on that. Uh, I'm not sure rationing. I understood your question fully, and I apologize for that. Um, can I restate, you're, you're talking about are we going to go to a world where, uh, well, the, the second scenario you're talking about, are we bound to a world where, uh, there are so many sick and elderly people, and we are so unable to pay for it that people are going to be encouraged to off themselves. Yeah. Yes, that's no, what you're asking. Uh, no, no. You can turn. No, it's actually. Sure. Um, it's actually more of uh, sort of the I think of Jeff Skilling as an example of when your quality of life, the drop off of your quality of life, um, is greater um, because of your upbringing. So having a more comfortable upbringing would naturally lead to a greater suffering, even though it's... Uh, okay, it's I'm going I'm to pass on the question, because I think, I, think I think there's so many premises that we would end up ripping apart at addressing the many premises, so I'm, I'm going to pass on it, but thanks. At least talk about the euthanasia? Sure, all right. <laughs> Lovely subject. Yeah. Ken, Ken Connor. Uh, I'll be happy to address that. Uh, Historically, in America, we have, we have maintained that uh, human, you know, it's a self-evident truth that, that uh, human beings are endowed by their creators with certain unalienable rights, the first of which is the right to life. That right to life has been deemed to be the foundation of all other rights because if you don't preserve it, you don't get to enjoy any of the others. Now, uh, I fear that rationing opens the door to euthanasia because decisions are made on a utilitarian basis about who lives and who dies. And that's the reason I injected the issue uh, on the front end of this debate about personhood because Dr. Singer has maintained that if you lack certain qualities, rationality, uh, the capacity ref to reflect on your own existence, uh, self-awareness. You're not a person. And he makes the point that if you're not a person, then it is uh, not as morally culpable to destroy that 
entity than it otherwise would be for a but Ken, he's not he's not making that argument well but my, my point ultimately goes to this is that when we use these utilitarian criteria to decide who lives and who dies effectively we wind up redefining who a person is and and that that uh, gives rise to a potential license to kill which invites euthanasia Peter Singer. Well, if I can comment on that, I, I think what we are increasingly finding, and we will in the future if you're looking to the future, is that more people want to have the right to make their own decisions about when they die, about when they've had enough. At, at, at the moment, people generally can say, I don't want any more treatment. But if there isn't treatment that's keeping them alive, they don't have that choice. Now, the, the citizens of Oregon, uh, the citizens of Washington State, have voted in favor of um, having that right, at least to get a, a physician to prescribe them medicine that they know will be lethal, that can end their life. Uh, the courts of Montana have said that citizens there have that right as well. Um, there are several nations in Europe that allow that and also allow, some of them allow uh, a doctor to give a lethal injection as well on the request of the patient satisfying certain conditions like a second opinion. Um, those countries are satisfied with that. In the Netherlands, for example, that's been the case for um, at least 20 years now, uh, and through different governments, through uh, liberal governments, through conservative governments, through a Catholic prime minister who never tried to repeal that law because he knew it was too popular and it would be political suicide if he did. Um, so I think that... Um, that is actually something that probably is increasingly going to happen as uh, people start to see that this is something that they want for themselves. But that's a matter of choice. That's not a matter of rationing. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, who are debating this motion, Ration End of Life Care. Uh, Peter Singer, I, I, I had the sense that Ken Connors' point wasn't about voluntary euthanasia, and I, I think the question was also about a culture in which euthanasia becomes a suggestion overhanging the elderly as they become more and more a number and as they become more difficult to take care of. That there's sort of, I think the question is, will we get to a world once we open the door to explicit rationing where an old person will know that it's time to get on the ice flow and get the push out? No, I don't believe so. I think, I think um, there's still going to be the possibility of choosing, providing, of course, as you're saying, that you're not imposing a huge burden on other people by opting for something uh, very expensive and of doubtful benefit. So there are going to be limits there. But I think otherwise people are going to be able to make their choices in accordance with their own values, and there will be some people who want to hang on to life as long as possible, and other people who will say... Uh, life has lost whatever quality it, it, it had that I think makes it worth living, and I think it's time to go. Sally Don't Pipes. you think, Peter, that these decisions should be made between doctors and families and, and the patient in conjunction? And living wills is an, an area that is expanding because if you have a living will, you can say so that when you're very ill, you won't, you're, it's not as if you have, you're under anesthetic or under, under drugs. You've actually made a decision. I know it's hard um, for to... Um, figure out when that time will be. But I think living wills are a great way to put things down. But I think doctors and families 
and the, and the person who is ill should be making these decisions. And we shouldn't be so concerned about, you know, the, the, the cost to the system because we have a lot of waste in our system right now. Yeah, I, I entirely agree that decisions about Peter living Singer. wills and about uh, voluntary euthanasia should be matters between doctors and patients. And that's why I think they're separate from decisions about costs and about when uh, treatment is imposing so much of a burden on others uh, and on the general health budget that it's not something that the public first should so, be paying for. So are we or I confusing euthanasia, which is a deliberate act to end life, with the withdrawal of an extraordinary measure which the patient hopes will save his or her life? Are those two different things? Um, they are somewhat different things, certainly. Um, I, again, I think patients should have those choices and patients might choose that they don't want life support even though that is considered uh, sufficiently cost-effective to be worth providing. But that, that should be a choice. Okay. Um, yeah, but they are different things. Um, Ma'am, sorry, I didn't see you. My name is Julie Goldstein. I'm a palliative care physician and educator. And um, my question is to all of you, but particularly Dr. Kellerman, um, I see firsthand all the waste that happens, particularly at the end of Doctor, life. Doctor, could you, could you move the mic just a little sure. closer? Thanks. And my question is, do you think that if we were to address the waste head-on by education, et cetera, that we might save enough money that we wouldn't even need to feel, we wouldn't have the need to ration? I'm glad you brought that up. I, I really believe that if we focused on getting rid of bad medicine and eliminating the kind of errors and communication problems that I discussed, and reinforced and sustained palliative care, that takes care of 90% of this issue. And the rest of it really does come down to a doctor, a patient, or their family, and what is meaningful and mattering to them. There may well be a point as a society where we have to say that above a certain amount of dollar value, you can pay for it yourself, but Medicare or private insurance or whatever won't go past that point, but I'm never going to get between an American and their wallet. Uh, it's my wallet or your wallet I'm more concerned about in that very unusual circumstance. Um, I just want to double back to the comment about euthanasia and say, as a doctor, I'm not ready to go there. But if a patient tells me in their terminal condition that they don't want an oxygen mask because they want to kiss their wife, I want to let them kiss their wife. Okay, Ken Connor. Well, listen, I, I affirm, doctor, uh, uh, the premises of your question, which is if we can eliminate the waste, fraud, and the abuse – doesn't that obviate the need for rationing? And that was the point I tried to make in my opening statement, is that, that, the, is that the, the alternative is not simply ration or not. The question is whether or not we're going to waste uh, enough, uh, continue to waste money uh, and then promote the need for rationing because of it. Now, the Institute of Medicine reports, for instance, that, that we spend... $75 billions of dollars a year because of health care fraud. $190 billion in excess administrative costs. Inefficiently delivered services, $130 billion a year. Now, my point is this. It's easier to argue for, for uh, balancing the budget on the backs of the old people who aren't voting and who don't have lobbyists and who don't have PACs than it is to try to wrest the money away from the people who are, who are perpetuating the fraud or rendering these services inefficiently. 
And so I'm saying let's not take the path of least resistance. Let's not take the lazy man's way out. Let's do what we need to do to reform wasteful spending and not not force ourselves into a position where we think we have to ration health care at the expense of the elderly. You, you just lost me there, Ken, because I thought you said okay. earlier that what we want to do is get government out of the business and let doctors do whatever the heck they want. No, but you I just think told when, us we were wasting seven hundred fifty billion dollars. So I'm when trying health care providers perpetrate fraud, government has a legitimate interest in stopping that fraud. That's a perfectly appropriate role for government. But, but it isn't just fraud. Peter I mean, the problem is that the financial incentives in the market system that the opposition are defending all the way provide incentives to do more. Here's an example. The national rate of cesarean sections is 34% of births. There's an outfit called Intermountain in Utah Healthcare that has a cesarean rate of 20%. It saved $50 million by doing fewer cesarean sections, but it cost it money. It lost money by doing fewer cesarean sections. By saving the system $50 million, it suffered a financial hit itself because the financial incentives are to do more and you get paid more and you can pay, you can build up your financial base, expand staff, etc. So this is the problem with allowing this to be done through the free market. We need something that puts a lid on not just fraud, but also the incentives to do more medical treatments. There's a woman in the far uh, back row. Thanks. We'll get a mic up to you just one second. Thank you. Um, I'm Peggy Lester, and I'm a nurse for 30 years, an emergency room nurse now. Um, My question for everyone on the panel is if... You know, the profit issue of all of this is what seems to me is what the issue is. And so eventually I see it that insurance companies, if we privatize everything, insurance companies will come to a point where they're not making a profit and that they will then begin to ration care, which they actually already do. So uh, I would like you to speak to, I think anytime we have a healthcare system that depends that everybody's going to make a profit off of it, we really don't do the best thing for everybody involved. So if you could just comment on that. Um, do you mind if I tweak your question slightly? I don't think very much to, to ask Sally Pipes to, 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 to your point that ultimately if you do go to an all-private system that private companies would have the same, exactly the same motives to ration as anybody else and that there would be rationing under, under the, the program that you're talking about. Well, first of all, I'd like to say... Is that, that, are you good with that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Under, under the Affordable Care Act, I believe with the essential benefit plan that will be part of these exchanges, where government is going to determine what is, what is a package, what is in, in the mandate, what, it's, what insurance companies are going to be able to charge, I believe that a number of insurance companies are going to get out of the insurance market because it's not profitable for them to stay in, in the market. And, and so we've already seen Principal Financial um, in uh, Indiana dropped all health insurance. 800,000 people lost their coverage. But, but Aetna, Sally, no, just a so, minute. Okay. Aetna um, 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 and I've seen several that. other... I've seen that on television recently. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Aetna and, and some other com- com- companies have already 
um, done that. I know that uh, uh, United Health is not writing individual policies in California because it's just too expensive, too much regulation. So, you know, I believe that Medicare should be there for those pe- seniors who really need it. Medicaid should be there for those people who are at 133% below the poverty level. I think that Medicaid should be block granted to the state so that they can make these decisions. I'm not saying the whole system should be private, but I'm saying if we can move away okay, from but, employer-based but, coverage right, but to I, an so individual I have to system. Up to you because I do have an internal sense of a question not being answered, and, and the question the, the question was the question was won't insurance companies if we went to a private system won't insurance companies end up with the, exactly the same need to conserve resources and her, this woman saying for the sake of making profit but whatever the reason is won't they have to conserve resources and end up rationing anyway? Well, there's always going to be rationing, but the question is, who do you want to be doing the rationing? Do you want government to be making decisions about your care, or do you want an insurance company which doesn't, isn't full of fraud and abuse? As Obama said, Medicare and Medicaid, $500 billion in fraud and abuse. If those programs are so great, why are they the programs that have all the fraud and abuse in them? Okay. John. Oh, uh, Ken Connor. Yes, sir. May I weigh in on that? Absolutely. I, I come back to the, to the premise that I outlined earlier. And that is that we should be able to make consumer-driven decisions informed by the medical community, mediated by markets. Now, the difference between markets and the government is that within markets you have a choice. And so if you don't like the way the insurance company is rationing your care or the, the circumstances uh, that it requires for you to participate in, then you have alternatives. When you're in a one-size-fits-all government program, you have no alternatives. You have lost your liberty in that regard. All right. I'm not feeling that there's a need for a response from your side on this because the question was more to this side, so I'm going to go on to another question. Sir. So this is a question about uh, rationing, correct, and whether or not ethically we as a government have the right to ration? Is that? Yeah, I would say so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so uh, last year, my father, sorry, my brother-in-law's father was in a car accident. Uh, had his spine severed and was in the hospital for six months. I see back and forth. Um, he actually, I think the bills were about one and a half million dollars. So with that, he was 72. I want to put out a, a hypothetical scenario. You have three gentlemen, 72 years old. One is unemployed. Uh, and always has been unemployed, always been on government care. One of them is a, uh, let's say, somebody who's in jail. And then a third person is somebody who has actually been in the system, paying taxes, everything else. They get in a car accident, same thing happens. Do all three deserve from government care the same result? Which side would you like to hear answer that first? Okay. (laughs) Did you follow? You didn't. If if you didn't follow, I want to tell you neither did I. Oh, okay. Good. Because well, it was it was a lot for me to, to follow. Can you simplify? You know, turn it into a principle rather than a scenario. <clears throat> okay. Thanks. Uh, three people. No, 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 no. Not the scenario. Okay. <laughs> Does everybody, regardless of their status and stature in life, deserve exactly the same care when the government is what is going to pay for that care? What a great question. <laughs> Ken Connor. Well. Uh, in, in, uh, in America, we've historically said that we're entitled to equal protection under the law. And so the government arguably has an obligation to treat everyone the same. Now, in the marketplace, uh, 
uh, it doesn't always work that way. We talk about equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. And so in that, that's what I like about the marketplace is that decisions can be made in the marketplace. Look, the, the notion that government is uh, more qualified to make decisions and to allocate resources than markets, I think, is a, a foolish notion. The history of the world suggests otherwise. The Soviet Union imploded on itself because its central managers were not efficient. But in the final analysis, I think we, we, we need to understand that the Constitution is a hedge against government. It's not a hedge against individuals. It's not a hedge against markets. But the Constitution limits the powers of government. So if government is going to assume certain responsibilities, it's, it's bound by the chains of the Constitution, and I think we want it that way. But to go to the question, yeah. though, your question was, does everybody deserve the same level of care yeah. regardless of who they are? And are you talking about extraordinary measures at the end-of-life care, which may need to be rationed because of scarcity of resources? That's what this debate's about, yeah. I believe. All right, so your, your question, but I think Sally Pipes said in her opening statements, each of us should have the right to live as long as we can. Right, and if you're, but, the, you, these people are 72, you said, or 71. They're, on, they're obviously on Medicare because they're, they're, they're seniors. And I think, when, I, I'd like to ask Art, when someone c- turns up at an emergency room, they're on Medicare, do you ask, are, they, are you an pr- ex-prisoner or are you unemployed? I think that, that there's a responsibility in the emergency room to treat these people. And I know, most doctors I know who are ER doctors have no idea whether the person is wealthy or poor or whatever. So I think, I think that under Medicare, they should, they should be treated by Art or whomever no, in the I equal way. They were in, the, they were in hospital for six months. All right. So over the course of six well, months, you know, you've added something I, new. I, I'm going to move no, no, on. I, I I'm going to move on, and not to, not as a sign of disrespect, it's just as a sign of the clock running. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for understanding. I want to get a couple more questions, and sir, right in the middle. My name is Janesh Romani. Can, can question, you say again? The mic wasn't on. Sorry. Start again. My name is Janesh Romani. My question is really for both parties, but I think more so for the side against the motion, because the side for the motion, I think, has more or less answered the question. But uh, the the question is. Is there a scenario or situation under which you would consider rationing end-of-life care? Well, look, uh, I think we're all in agreement that rationing is a de facto matter. Rationing occurs. The question is, who should ration? And is is government uh, in a better position than others to ration? But you've you've made that point before, but... Uh, so so to, the, to, to his specific question, the answer is yes. There are situations the in which The answer is you- yes, and I favor rationing through markets and individuals rather than through government. Okay. Does the other side want to respond to that or move on? No? Okay. Um, <laughs> ma'am? Oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to take two more questions then if it's a tourist question. If the, let the gentleman go first because he possesses the microphone. <laughs> and, then, and then we'll come to Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So um, for scarce resources, I view that there's kind of two types. One is hospitals and doctors, and the other is government capital and government money to spend. Um, and so I view them as kind of differently when I think of rationing end-of-life care. And so I've kind of first, in terms of from this side, I, I believe I've kind of heard that you're in favor of rationing um, you know, government spending while not rationing hospitals and doctors for those who want to pay for it. 
And I'm kind of, so first I want to know, is, is that kind of correct? And then also for this side, do you view that, um, you know, why shouldn't somebody be responsible to, you know, save up their money or pay for private insurance and so that they can uh, pay for that end-of-life care while the government can ration the government spending but not ration the doctors and the hospitals? I want to take your question as an opportunity to, to bring up another key point, which we spent a lot of time tonight talking about economics, and we spent a little time talking about the uninsured and the underinsured. But there's another group that really suffers under the current system, and those are the folks who are lining the hallways and in trauma bays and ERs waiting for the ICU bed that they can't get into and are there for two or three days. The ambulances have diverted from a trauma center to a non-trauma center because all the beds are full. We are not a country of unlimited money or of unlimited critical care capacity. And so my perspective, and I think my colleague's perspective is, given that we live in a finite world, we want to do the most good for the most people possible, and that should be our fundamental mission. You can call that rationing, you can call it rational use of resources, but every life has worth. And the fact that somebody got there first shouldn't be ultimately the prevailing decision. We've got to maximize the benefit and the value and the so good what's, to society. What's, what's that we the can system do. then, Art? Then what's the system then? The system is again: you you have to make decisions. You work with families. You have to figure out where no, but if, can but you get but if it's, the best does, chance. Does Medicare get to set up a panel to say we're going to provide this? particular procedure or not, because it's it, it, evidence-based medicine suggests it's not cost-effective. Does Medicare get to say we're not going to do that? I think Medicare gets to say we're not going to pay for it. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I think if you say you're not going to pay for it, people can go, huh, never mind. Okay. I mean, that we know that. The RAND, RAND has done work for 40 years that show that if people have to put their money on the table, they tend to make more careful decisions. Mm -hmm. And that's just human nature. Okay, ma'am. but just enough. Do you want to respond to that, uh, Ken or Sally? Okay. Yes. Ken, I mean, Ken I, Connor. You've made a very good point that I think is a very important point, and that is that, that when we don't have skin in the game, we're less likely to be good stewards of the resources available to us. And so, for instance, I think one way that we can promote having skin in the game and the responsible uh, consumption of medical resources is to allow uh, young people, for instance, to have uh, health savings accounts, with uh, high deductible insurance uh, policies, uh, and they've got skin in the game. Uh, let the government uh, subsidize uh, or, or provide tax breaks to individuals who purchase health insurance, not just to businesses. Uh, the way the current system is set up is that uh, we tend to overconsume the resources because we don't have any skin in the game. The, the, the employer is paying the bill, the government's subsidizing the employer, and there's no skin off our nose. And so if we, want to, if we want to promote good stewardship, good stewardship, then I think we ought to, ought to cause people to have skin in the game. And that would mean that they have a stake in their own health care decisions. If they do, they're less likely to overconsume resources than they otherwise would be. Sally Pice. Right, and that, that's a very good point. Consumer-driven um, health care, health savings accounts have shown that the cost of care is down because people do have skin in the game. And in fact, Art, Rand Corporation came out with a study on HSAs for small businesses showing that that is a way to reduce costs 
for small business employers. And I think that it, it was, there were really good results. About 13.5 million people in this country have HSAs combined with a high deductible plan because if you have employer-based coverage, it is what Ken said, first-dollar coverage. People have no idea what the doctor visit costs. They go more often. Consumer-driven health care is a terrific solution. Okay, ma'am, I owe you an apology. If this were the Oscars, the music would be playing. I, I, have, to, I have to stop. Because this, can cloud, because this concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And remember, before the arguments began, we asked all of you to vote on this motion. Uh, we're going to ask you again after you hear the closing remarks. This is their last chance to try to change your mind. On to round three, closing statements. They are two minutes each. Our motion is this, ration end-of-life care. And here to summarize her position against this motion, Sally Pipes, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Pacific Research Institute. Thank you, John. And you know by now I am against the proposition that um, end-of-life care should be rationed. The Medicare trustees have projected that the program Medicare will be bankrupt by 2024 at a cost of $1 trillion, almost double the cost today. One of the ways to reduce the cost of our Medicare program is to deny end-of-life care. I believe it's morally wrong, but the position supported by my opponents. There are 50 million seniors in this country today on Medicare, and that number is going to expand exponentially as the baby boomers retire, and I am one of the baby boomers. Doctors are already feeling the financial squeeze. They're reimbursed by government at a rate 20% below what they get for treating private patients. It is no wonder that 52% of doctors surveyed say they're limiting the access of Medicare patients to their practices. Unless reformed, this could result actually in bureaucrats setting an age limit for one's life. In order to save Medicare for those who truly need it, changes are necessary, including premium support, means testing, and raising the eligibility age from 65. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who represents my district, if the changes suggested by Romney and Ryan are implemented, seniors will die in the streets. Well, I believe if we don't make these changes, based on the Medicare trustees, seniors will die in the streets. They won't be able to get doctors or the care they need. Don Berwick, has, when he was administrator at CMNS, said, it's not a question of whether we'll ration care or not. Will we ration it with our eyes open? We do not want a nice system in this country. It's not the American way, where a government body determines what is uh, cost-effective rather than medically effective. America needs a health care system where doctors and patients make decisions about the best kind of care needed when their loved ones approach the end of their lives. Morally and ethically, this is the only way to proceed. I urge you to vote against rationing the end-of-life care. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Sally Pipes. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Peter Singer. He is professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. We've actually reached a surprising amount of agreement in this debate because uh, all sides agree that rationing occurs. Sally said there's always going to be rationing. Ken said we are all in agreement that rationing occurs. The question is, he went on to say, is how do we, who should ration? He says he favours rationing through markets rather than government. But you should read that article that he wrote that I mentioned before on the website 
about the problems of the elderly because here's a quote from that article. For-profit nursing homes have on average 32% fewer nurses and 47% higher deficiencies than their non-profit counterparts. This increased emphasis on profits has led to a distressing rise in neglected and abused seniors. So I have to ask, why does Ken have such confidence in the markets solving the problems of the allocation of medical resources when he is rightly, I believe, critical of what for-profit nursing homes do to abused seniors. We think that there has to be a better way than allowing profit maximisation to determine uh, how we allocate those health dollars. Let me just conclude by referring to uh, the case that Sally began with, the sad case of her mother, and say that although that is a tragic case, obviously we cannot generalise from a sample of one. I've spent most of my life living under single-payer systems, either in Australia or in the United Kingdom. Uh, I, or rather my wife, had two of our children in the United Kingdom and one of them in Australia. I think that the quality of care that we have received in Australia has been outstanding. I've obviously had medical care in this country. I don't think that it's better than it is in Australia. Um, and I don't think that it's even more respectful of individual choice because Australians can insure themselves in addition to Medicare. Peter Singer, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Our motion is Ration End-of-Life Care, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Ken Connor. He is founder and chairman of the Center for a Just Society. One of our founding fathers said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Men are not angels, and we do. Markets are not perfect, and they do need regulation. The question is, where do we wind up striking the balance? And I can tell you, to Peter's point, that care in our nursing homes in America is America's dirty secret. And it's in part because uh, real estate investors pose as, uh, as uh, health care providers, and the government doesn't adequately regulate them, plain and simple. And, and we have an absolute scourge of preventable bed sores and avoidable malnutrition and dehydration, uh, falls and avoidable infections. But let me say this. I, I, I think it's important to understand that rationing is not required in order for the healthcare system to remain solvent. That assumes the fallacy of only one alternative that either we ration or we're going to go broke. That's not true. And that's why I brought up the point earlier in the debate, which Dr. Kellerman didn't seem to understand, that there are lots of places from which we can effect savings. But it's work to effect these savings. It's hard work to wrest resources from the hands of the special interests. We should not ration we should not balance the budgets on the back of the sick and the dying. We can provide good health care for all people through and including the end of life. We need to ask good questions. We need to ask, are the procedures necessary? Are they clinically indicated? Is the cost reasonable? What we need is a rational approach to end-of-life health care, not the rationing of end-of-life health care. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Conner. Thank you. 
Our motion is Ration End of Life Care. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Arthur Kellerman. He is the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the Rand Corporation. Most Western democracies have health care systems that provide you with all the care you need, whether or not you can afford it. Our health care system has evolved to provide you with all the health care you can afford, whether or not you need it. Modern American medicine is a $2.8 trillion a year industry, and it is rapidly outgrowing our economy's capacity to support it. More high-tech care is not necessarily better care. Sometimes the basics, pain control, bedside attention, love, matter a lot more than the most sophisticated $100,000 medicines there are. That's why when terminally ill patients came into my ER, I did not immediately intubate, immediately start multiple IVs, immediately do anything I didn't absolutely have to do. I stabilized the patient the best I could. I assessed the situation, and I talked to the patient if they were able to communicate or not. I would bring the proxy, the son, the daughter, the brother, the spouse to the bedside. Let me tell you what happened one night as an example. I brought a daughter who had cared for her mother for 10 years to the bedside. And I said, your mom has a severe pneumonia. She's septic. This is the third time she's been in the hospital in the last two months. We can do everything we know to do, and she will almost certainly die, but she might pull through. And the best we can hope for is she'll be the way she was a week ago when she didn't recognize you and was in the nursing home. So my question to you is not... What do you want us to do? I know what you want us to do. You want us to make your mother the way she used to be. I can't do that. So I want to ask you, what would your mother want if she came back now and stood next to you and she said, Mama would say it's time. As you vote tonight, I ask you to consider what kind of doctor do you want to take care of your mother and what kind of doctor will you want to take care of you? And that should guide your vote. Thank you, Art Kellerman. And that concludes our closing statements, and now it is time to find out which side you feel argued best. We're going to have the second vote now, so if you go to the keypads in your seat. After hearing everything, we want to know where you stand, whether you have been persuaded to one side or the other. If you agree with the motion, ration end-of-life care, the side argued by this team, push number one. If you disagree with the motion, with this team, push number two. And if you are or became undecided, push number three. Um, and you can ignore all of the other keys, and they will lock in uh, very quickly, actually. We'll have the vote probably in about a minute and 45 seconds. And so while we're waiting, a few things that I want to say. Um, first, of all, to, uh, all, first of all, ma'am, if we're lucky enough to be invited back next year, you find me at the beginning of the debate, I owe you the first question. Okay? <laughs> all right. Um, and everybody else who stood up and asked questions, including the ones that we didn't get to use, it takes a lot of guts to stand up, and a lot of the questions were great, actually. I want to thank all of you who, who, who took part in that. Uh, 
I, I also want to say, um, d- despite what I would professionally consider a little bit of meandering in the middle, uh, I think we got into some very important, uh, some very important places in this debate where the clash was head on and we could see the values represented by both of these sides. We could see them have to actually think in real time. That's a very impressive thing to see happen. It's difficult to do. I want to thank this panel for, for what they brought here to this stage tonight. It's uh, really been a pleasure to, to, to be part of Chicago Ideas Week and to be in the city at all. Uh, you actually are a very, very lively audience, and you're going to sound great on the radio. I just want you to know. Uh, afterwards, uh, after the debate, we would be delighted, of course, to have you tweet about the debate. Um, our Twitter handle is at IQ2US, and the hashtag is the same, IQ2US. Um, I want to thank the uh, CIW team in particular. I want to name some people, Brad Keywell, Carrie Kennedy, and Jessica Malkin, who, again, were very instrumental in getting us on this stage. Our next debate uh, is Wednesday, October 24th. It will be held in New York City. And the motion in this case is the rich are taxed enough. In support of the motion, we have Glenn Hubbard, He is currently dean of the Columbia Business School. Um, He is also an economic advisor to presidential candidate Mitt Romney. His partner is Art Laffer, uh, who is known as the father of supply-side economics. The famous Laffer curve is his curve. He was a member of President Reagan's Economic Policy Advisory Board. He's debated with us before, um, and he's he's actually very, not only smart, he's very witty. He uh, He keeps everybody laughing. Uh, against this motion, the richer tax enough, we have Robert Reich, who is former Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and professor at the University of California in Berkeley, and Mark Zandi, who is one of the most widely followed economic forecasters and the chief economy, uh, economist of Moody's ec- uh, Analytics. So, all right, the results are being walked out. Thanks very much. So remember, we had you vote... See, that's never happened in New York. That was very generous. Our motion is ration end-of-life care. We now have the results in on your vote. Remember, we had you vote before you heard the arguments and once again after hearing the arguments. And the team who has changed your number the most, who has moved you to their side by the largest percentage, will be declared our winner. So here is how it breaks out. Before the debate, 43% were for the motion, 22% against, and 35% undecided. After the debate, 38% are for the motion. I'm sorry. After the debate, 81% are for the motion. That's up 38%. 12% are against. That's down 10%. 7% are undecided. The side arguing for the motion carries the debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan in Chicago and Intelligence Squared U.S.